Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. Today, God speaks to us from John 11, different, a lot of verses you will see there. Um, había un hombre enfermo llamado Lázaro que era de Betania, el pueblo de María y Marta, sus hermanas. María era la misma que ungió con perfume al Señor y le secó los pies con sus cabellos. Las dos hermanas mandaron a decirle a Jesús, Señor, tu amigo querido está enfermo. Cuando Jesús oyó esto, dijo, esta enfermedad no terminará en muerte, sino que es para la gloria de Dios, para que por ella el Hijo de Dios sea glorificado. Jesús amaba a Marta, a su hermana y a Lázaro. A pesar de eso, cuando oyó que Lázaro estaba enfermo, se quedó dos días más donde se encontraba. Después dijo a sus discípulos, volvamos a Judea. A su llegada, Jesús se encontró con que Lázaro llevaba ya cuatro días en el sepulcro. Betania estaba cerca de Jerusalén, como a tres kilómetros de distancia. Y muchos judíos habían ido a casa de Marta y María a darles el pésame por la muerte de su hermano. Cuando Marta supo que Jesús llegaba, fue a su encuentro, pero María se quedó en la casa. Señor, le dijo Marta a Jesús, si hubieras estado aquí, mi hermano no habría muerto. Pero yo sé que aún ahora Dios te dará todo lo que le pidas. Tu hermano resucitará, le dijo Jesús. Yo sé que resucitará en la resurrección en el día final, respondió Marta. Entonces Jesús le dijo, Yo soy la resurrección y la vida. El que cree en mí vivirá aunque muera. Y todo el que vive y cree en mí no morirá jamás. ¿Crees esto? Sí, Señor, yo creo que tú eres el Cristo, el Hijo de Dios, el que había de venir el, al mundo. Jesús aún no había entrado en el pueblo, sino que todavía estaba en el lugar donde Marta se había encontrado con él. Los judíos que habían estado con María en la casa dándole el pésame al ver que se había levantado y había salido de prisa, la siguieron pensando que iba al sepulcro a llorar. Cuando María llegó a donde estaba Jesús y lo vio, se arrojó a sus pies y le dijo, «Señor, si hubieras estado aquí, mi hermano no habría muerto». Al ver llorar a María y a los judíos que la habían acompañado, Jesús se turbó y se conmovió profundamente. «¿Dónde lo han puesto?», preguntó. «Ven a verlo, Señor», le respondieron. Jesús lloró. Conmovido una vez más, Jesús se acercó al sepulcro. Era una cueva cuya entrada estaba tapada con una piedra. «Quiten la piedra», ordenó Jesús. Marta, la hermana del difunto, objetó. «Señor, ya debe oler mal, pues lleva cuatro días allí». «No te dije que si crees verás la gloria de Dios», le contestó Jesús. Entonces quitaron la piedra. Jesús, alzando la vista, dijo, «Padre, te doy gracias porque me has escuchado. Ya sabía yo que siempre me escuchas, pero lo dije por la gente que está aquí presente para que crean que tú me enviaste». Dicho esto, gritó con todas sus fuerzas, «Lázaro, sal fuera». El muerto salió con vendas en las manos y en los pies y el rostro cubierto con un sudario. 
Quítenle las vendas y dejen que se vaya. Les dijo Jesús. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you. So my, uh, my wife gives me a hard time about uh, the extent to which being on time is a bit of an idol for me. Um, I can admit that it's a problem because uh, most of the time for me, being on time uh, means that you're late. And I have a very unique anxiety about being late. And so I always end up wanting to be places early. Um, when I think about being late, um, it, it drives me nuts. Even if the person who maybe I might be uh, late for does not even care, I can't help it. I cannot help that anxiety that inevitably wells up in me. It's been a real sanctifying process over the years, knowing that not everybody in my life has that same anxiety. It'd be great if you all did, but I know that you don't. And so that's fine. It's been a sanctifying process for me. Um, but it, you know, that plays out in various ways. So when I was in college or seminary uh, and the professor would give a deadline, you could be for sure there was zero chance I was going to wait until that deadline to submit whatever needed to be submitted. It was going to be in early days before. Um, I have pastor friends who are always stunned that I usually have like 90% of my sermon done for Sunday on the Monday before the Sunday is to come. That usually blows their minds. But again, I just can't help it. I can't handle the idea of potentially being late. Now, for others, maybe many of you, uh, my wife included, living ahead of deadlines seems maybe sometimes silly. Uh, she's great at working under pressure and produces better content when she's up against the clock. And maybe some of you are like that. I think I would die uh, if I lived that way to each their own. Uh, but there are times when being late, of course, we know, can have very real consequences. Uh, for example, you know, make a late payment, you're going to get hit with fees. Uh, if you're running a race, start a, a second late, you're going to lose uh, that race. Uh, if you are applying for a job or you have to go to a job interview, show up late to that job interview, you could potentially not get hired, right? There are a lot of examples. Some are silly, some are more serious, but being late can come with consequences. And in our story, we have an instance when it seems like Jesus was late, And as a result, there were very serious consequences that took place because, because Jesus did not arrive on time, as many thought he should, his friend died. The question, however, is was Jesus really late? Or in the words of Gandalf to Frodo, when Frodo accused Gandalf of being late, do you remember what he says to him, uh, what Gandalf says? He says, a wizard is never late nor is he early. He always arrives precisely when he means to. Is that true? In the midst, that in the midst of our, our suffering and death, as we saw in the story, that Jesus is never late, nor is he early, but that he always arrives precisely when he means to. Now, today we continue our series uh, in John looking, uh, that we've been calling A Public Faith, looking at the book of John by uh, considering some of the, the central claims of the Christian faith. And in this very famous story, one where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, we see one of the most central claims of the Christian faith, which is wrapped up in Jesus's actions surrounding his friend's death. And in this story, we see Jesus do three things that if we have eyes to hear, or I'm sorry, eyes to hear, eyes to see, ears to hear, actually reveal the extent to which the Christian faith is like none other. 
What we see in this story is Jesus do three things. We see him, we see that Jesus waits, we see that Jesus weeps, and then we see that Jesus restores. All right, let's look at each of those. First, he waits. So to begin, look at uh, verse 5. Verse 5 says this, now Jesus loved Mary, I'm sorry, loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. In other words, let me just pause there. Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, they were all friends of Jesus. They were close. And this is a very important detail. These were not strangers to Jesus. They were friends. So in knowing that, the next statement is actually pretty striking. Because in verse 6, what we see is it says that, So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, when Jesus heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. And then he goes on to say in verse 17 uh, that on his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, I didn't include this in the reading, but Mary and Martha had sent for Jesus because they knew that Lazarus' con- Lazarus's condition was a serious one. And knowing that Jesus was Jesus... They wanted Jesus to come and heal their brother. Now, it's interesting to me that they believed that Jesus had the power to heal and so asked him to come. But what does he do? He waits two days before leaving to join them. And in that time, Lazarus dies. Now, here's what's striking to me about that narrative is that that narrative seems and feels so real doesn't it? I mean, it's not, a, it's not an uncommon story for someone to come before God, believing that God is able and capable of intervening into whatever befalls us, and yet his seeming lack of presence results in our worst nightmares coming true. I mean, this is one of the great conundrums of a belief in an all-powerful, all-knowing God is why does he not intervene when he's able to do so? Why does it seem like when we ask God to come right away and intervene, it feels like he just decides to wait two days? And in that time, it seems like everything falls apart. And you know, we, we experience this, uh, this tension to varying degrees. You know, if we, if we live life long enough, there will be times when we are confronted with why God allows what he allows, when we know that he could stop the worst things from happening. And maybe to even make it worse, if you live long enough, not only will you experience things that you can't fathom as to why God would allow them to happen, but in addition to that, you will then also get to see other people experience what you wanted to experience from the beginning. What we ultimately wanted, we see other people have. This is one of the things that strikes me about the story. Why did Mary and Martha reach out to Jesus about Lazarus? Because they had seen Jesus perform miracles. They knew he could do it. They knew that he held that power. Others got to experience what they wanted to experience, yet for some reason, they didn't get that same experience. Why? Why did Jesus intervene in the lives of other people, but not intervene in their lives, especially given the fact that they were friends? Why did Jesus wait? 
Now, to be honest with you, uh, my, my instinct right now is to try to like relieve that tension and give an answer, to try and provide some kind of clarity as to why Jesus waited. But I don't want to do that quite yet. We'll get there. Because I want to acknowledge the fact that there's actually no easy answer. That tension is a very real tension. Knowing that God is a God capable of intervening, and yet time and time again, seeing that he doesn't intervene in the ways that we would expect him to. And that tension can really only be relieved by considering the other two things that Jesus does in this story. Because not only does Jesus wait, but we also see that Jesus weeps. And that begins to help us move towards some clarity. So let's consider that. He weeps. So after Jesus finally arrives, again, Lazarus has been dead when he arrives. And when he arrives, that tension is palpable in the conversations that he has with uh, both Mary and with Martha. So in verse 21, Martha says, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And then later, Uh, When they meet up with Mary in verse 32, she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. In both of their responses, we hear both a belief that Jesus could have intervened, but also what seems like some frustration that he was not there to do so. Now, from the beginning, we know that Jesus knew exactly what he was doing the entire time. It's never been a mystery what Jesus was up to. In verse 4, Uh, Jesus said that this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for the glory, uh, for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. And we see Jesus' confidence that death will not come uh, in verse 23 when he says to the sisters, your brother will rise again. In other words, Jesus is saying, listen, you see a dead brother, I see an opportunity for resurrection. And Jesus has known this from the beginning. Right? We're told that from the beginning of the story. And in that response, we actually start getting a little bit of a glimpse of something that begins to relieve that tension, right? that Jesus knows. Jesus sees something, knows something, and has confidence in something that Mary and Martha don't yet fully understand. Because the reason Jesus did not intervene in saving Lazarus's life from this sickness is that Jesus intended to call Lazarus back from the dead. And in dramatic fashion, look at uh, verse 40. It says this, then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always, I know that I knew that you always hear me. But I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. Verse 43, he says, when he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and the cloth around his face. I'll stop there. So Jesus did something, as you could imagine, that completely shattered the categories of those who may have doubted his commitment to their good. He accomplished something that Mary and Martha could not have fathomed that he would have done. But in the midst of this remarkable miracle, we see something, again, pretty striking. Because even though Jesus knew exactly what he was about to do, exactly what he came to do, look at what happens just before in verse 32. 
Verse 32 says this, that when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. In verse 35, here's what's striking, that Jesus wept. What is that? Jesus had absolute knowledge and confidence about the coming resurrection of Lazarus. I mean, if anything, you would imagine maybe Jesus chuckling like, oh, these people have no idea what's about to come. But instead, what we see is Jesus weeping. He was about to shatter the paradigms of everyone there. And yet, when he saw Mary and Martha in grief, he too was moved to tears. The death of his friend and the sorrow of the sisters brought him to these tears. I mean, again, what is that? I mean, is that what the Apostle Paul encourages us in, in Romans 12, that we should weep with those who weep? I mean, is that what it is? You know, is Jesus just trying to be empathetic with them? Or is there something deeper going on there? I think there's something deeper going on there than Jesus just trying to be empathetic I think he is genuinely heartbroken at what's going on here. Genuinely heartbroken at the reality of death. I think Jesus' tears are tears of mourning, both for his friend who was taken by death, the sorrow of Mary and Martha, but also the reality that those he loves experience heartache at all. I think he sees the sorrow and recognizes that sorrow as something that breaks him, breaks his heart, brings him to tears. And I think that regardless of what he knows is about to come, the love of his friends cause him to be present with them in their pain, for he himself feels that same pain. And this, my friends, is the thing that um, begins to relieve some of the tension that we may feel and experience. It begins to relieve some of the tension as to why God doesn't intervene in the ways that we think that he should. Because though Mary and Martha didn't understand what was coming, they definitely knew in that moment that at minimum, they were not alone. That Jesus was with them, weeping with them. You know, Jesus, he's not, it's not some distant God, uninterested or apathetic to our pain. He knows from the beginning he knows that he is this resurrection, that he has the power of life. And yet when we cry as a result of the sorrow that life brings, Jesus is a friend who cries with us. You know, for one, this is utterly unique to the Christian faith, meaning that the Roman and Greek gods of the day, they were fickle and selfish gods who cared very little for the plight of humanity. When you look at other uh, world religions, Eastern religions in particular, Eastern religions tend to think very little of the physical, very little of the temporal. And so the goal is to pursue a detachment from the things of this world in order to avoid the sorrows that might come as a result of those attachments. You know, more modern humanistic religions and philosophies tend to see our existence as a, a cycle of life and death. And though we might cry over death, there really is no ultimate reason to do so because death is just part of life. But the Christian faith tells us something completely different. Because one of the reasons that Jesus weeps is because death is not just part of life. 
The death before him is abnormal, not normal. It's not the way that things should be. Jesus' tears give us a glimpse into how things ought to be. And death and suffering are not part of it. And here is what I would hope we all hear and take away from this story. Is that you and I, like Mary and Martha, might not understand what God is doing or why he does it. In fact, some of you are still wondering why God has allowed certain things that have befallen you. You do not have answers for it yet. You're still feeling like, Lord, it did not have to be this way. You could have intervened. And you know what? That kind of response, for what it's worth, that kind of frustration is not something that actually frustrates God. And we can see that in the story. Instead, as we, like Mary and Martha, continue trusting in the midst of this uncertainty, we can know that Jesus is there with us, crying the same tears that we are crying. Right? Our frustration or, and Mary and Martha's frustration doesn't cause Jesus to run away but rather, or to ignore them, but rather it, it actually causes him to draw them closer. This is what we see in his weeping. Because whatever suffering... Whatever death you've experienced, it's not the way that things ought to be. And though we might not realize it fully, Jesus is up to something, something that will absolutely shatter our paradigms. And our confidence can be in the fact that Jesus weeps with us. But there, the tension is still not fully relieved yet. Meaning Jesus waits and he doesn't intervene. Jesus comes and he weeps, though he knows uh, that he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead. And it is true that we can take comfort in the reality that he also weeps with us. But here's an ongoing tension that I've always considered and thought about as I think about this story, is that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, and yet Lazarus still died again. The sick and the lame that Jesus healed all throughout his ministry, they all died. Over the course of history, the greatest heroes of faith and those with the faith of nothing more than a mustard seed, all of them have died. You know, with Lazarus, I can just imagine him on his second deathbed, remembering the time that Jesus raised him from the dead, and the the net result of that was probably what? An extra 20, maybe 30 years if he was lucky? In the grand scheme of history, what difference does it make if Jesus raises you from the dead only for you to one day die again? Plus, I heard uh, someone once jokingly make the observation that if you were Lazarus, how upset would you be having been brought back to life? Right? Lazarus, he's settling into eternity, an eternity of rest and healing. And then Jesus beckons him back from heaven only to give him another 20 or 30 years in this life, only to once again die again. The only person in this entire story who is not upset about the passing of Lazarus is Lazarus. He was good. But in our own lives, you know, as we think about the lives that we live, what is the net gain of God keeping our worst nightmares at bay or maybe fulfilling our greatest dreams. And in the grand scheme of things, what is the net gain? In the grand scheme of history, foremost, 
the greatest personal tragedies that you will ever experience will be forgotten. In a matter of time, no one will even know or even care about the worst things that befall us. In the grand scheme of history for most, if we can avoid our greatest nightmare and maybe if you're lucky, only experience your greatest dreams, do any of those dreams really matter if in the end we lose it all when death befalls us? Did the resurrection of Lazarus really matter in the long run if he was ultimately just going to die again? How do we resolve the tension of those questions? Well, I think in our passage, Jesus actually provides us a fuller picture of his resurrection power that actually does provide us some relief in the midst of that tension, which brings us finally for us to consider that he restores. There is a key to this whole passage that we have not yet considered fully. And that key finally gives us the resources to deal with the realities of suffering and death in this life. Let's go back to uh, verse 21. It says this, uh, Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Verse 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. Here, again, several things. First, we see another uh, I am statement from Jesus. Uh, if you've been with us over the course of this series, we see that time and time again, Jesus references himself as I am. I am the resurrection and the life. And as we've seen over and over again, this is Jesus taking the name of God, a name that is so sacred that it would not even be uttered by the faithful. That's how serious it was, and yet Jesus not only utters the name of God, but takes the name of God for himself. I am. But he does not take the name of God, just, just take it for himself. He also goes on to say that I am resurrection power, that I am life. In verse 25, again, he says that the one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. See, Jesus never intended Lazarus's resurrection to be a final solution to the problem of Lazarus's death here. He intended Lazarus's resurrection to be a mere glimpse into the power that he holds as the one who is life itself. Lazarus, you know, he'd been ushered into eternity, and I can again imagine he had no interest, zero interest in returning. Lazarus' resurrection was not for his sake, but rather, Lazarus's resurrection was a sign for our sake. See, the hope of the Christian faith is not just that Jesus was able to resurrect people from the dead. Rather, the hope of the Christian faith is that he is life itself, that he is resurrection power. And as such, he holds the power to restore and redeem and transform everything that sin and suffering and death have taken away. And that restoration, redemption, transformation 
is ours if we would just believe that he is the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who has come into the world. And on the, on the one hand, I know that that might sound like a bit of an abstraction for us right now, meaning I, how can I possibly conceive of resurrection power that will one day come when today I am buried in sorrow and death? But on the other hand, we can find great comfort and hope in sorrow and death because the one in whom we trust is life, is resurrection power. I mean, what is the suffering that has befallen you? You know, I don't know what God is doing in letting you experience it, but I do know what he is going to do. He is going to, at some point, shatter our paradigms by redeeming and restoring whatever was taken from you in that suffering, by providing something greater and more fulfilling, which is ultimately himself. And in case that feels like cold comfort of what will simply come one day, also be reminded that he's also the one that weeps with us until that day comes. The story of Lazarus is a reminder once again that death does not have the final say. That Jesus, the one who is life and who is resurrection power, he has the final say. He always has and he always will. And we can have hope that one day we will experience that power in its fullest as we trust him. And with all that said, I want to just close with uh, one final thought and a bit of a challenge. Because there are some who emphasize the experience of Christ's healing power, and they tend to emphasize that power in the here and now. And in some ways, rightfully so. We do believe that Jesus has the power to heal and to restore right now. And we often pray to that end. When someone is sick, we pray for their healing, trusting and hoping that he will heal. But we also know that God does not always heal. God does not always rescue in the ways that we desire. He does not always intervene in the ways that we would expect. And some might come claiming that if we would just have enough faith that we could experience God's intervening power now. And to that I would say, no. That is not the way that God works. We can pray with faith trusting that God is able to intervene and work in our lives in particular kinds of ways. But in doing so, we also need to pray with a trust in God's sovereignty. And I think about often when I think about this idea, I think about Jesus' prayer before he goes to the cross. You remember the, the prayer that he prays to the Father, right? He's in anguish about what is to come, and he prays, God, take this. Father, take this cup from me. But then how does he end that prayer? not my will, but yours be done. What's beautiful about that prayer is there's a big, bold prayer. God, I need you to intervene. Take this cup from me. But if you don't, I trust you nonetheless. Not my will, but yours be done. And assuming that healing and restoration will come now is 
what theologians called an overrealized eschatology. It's assuming that what God will do one day in its fullest, we ought to experience now. And that's not the way, my friends, that God works. Because God does have promises that he's going to fulfill. There is going to be full and complete restoration and healing that God will take the worst of circumstances and turn them for the good of those who love him and trust him. Yes, but those may not be experiences that we experience now. And no matter what it is that befalls us, despite the suffering and the death that may surround us, he is nonetheless faithful. He's nonetheless with us, weeping with us. And I draw this out and I close with this because I want you to know that you can trust God in the midst of suffering and death. And it's a weak faith that needs a sign or a wonder to, to prove the measure of God's faithfulness to us or God's presence with us. And I don't want that for us because we can have bold, strong faith that God can intervene and yet also trust when he doesn't. That, my friends, is what a mature faith looks like, trusting him in all things. And so until the day when he comes and he restores and renews a day we believe that will come, we can rest in the knowledge that Jesus weeps with us, that he promises us life, that resurrection power to restore, that it will come one day. And yet he is good through it all. My prayer would be that for myself and for all of us, we would see this story of Lazarus not as something that we ought to expect right now, that resurrection power right now, but rather we would see the story of, of Lazarus as a glimpse into the coming restoration that Jesus promises. May that sustain us until the day that we experience it. Let's pray. Father, <clears throat> Lord, we acknowledge that it's often difficult to rationalize, justify, understand why you wait two days, why you don't intervene when we think you should, why you don't work in the ways that we know that you're able to work. We believe that you're a God of great power. We believe that you're a God of, of miracles who's able to restore right now and yet often it feels like you're waiting, not intervening. And Lord, we just name the fact that at times that can be hard and disorienting. But Lord, I pray that even as we may not fully understand all the reasons why you don't work the ways that we think you should, that Jesus also reminds us that you're a God who is near in the midst of the pain, that you weep with us, that you look upon the suffering and death that befall us with compassion because it's not the way that things are supposed to be. The suffering of this life is not normal. It is abnormal. It is not your intention. And that breaks your heart. Breaks your heart to the extent that you sent your one and only son into this world of suffering in order to accomplish a great work for us that Jesus is resurrection, life, and that as we trust in him, we can experience that resurrection life in its fullest one day when you restore and redeem all things. And until that day, I pray that we would have the same posture as Jesus, praying big, bold prayers, 
while at the same time trusting in your will, in your sovereignty. Not our will, but yours be done. May that be our cry. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. For more information on our church and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.